Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We're continuing with Romans chapter 11. We're reaching the end of Romans chapter 11, which also means the end of this sermon series that uh, has been going on for quite some time because of the interruption. But uh, we're going to be finishing next week with Romans 11. We'll continue through the book of Romans, but the last three chapters, we've really been looking at the, the interplay of grace and mystery in God's plan of salvation. And Paul has been bringing very complicated and mysterious questions to light, things that touch on the ways that God works beneath the surface, the way that he works that we don't always perceive. So that's what we'll be exploring this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Father, we ask your blessing upon these words We ask that your spirit would illuminate them for us. In Christ's name, amen. I don't remember how long ago this was, but but at least, I don't know, in the past decade or so, as you follow different conversations, different arguments about social problems, I found myself seeing a lot of interviews that had one thing in common. No matter what the problem was, no matter what kind of expert was being interviewed about this, wherever the conversation went in terms of analyzing the the causes of the problem, when it came to the end, when it was time to propose solutions, it seemed like the same solution was proposed to every problem. No matter how complicated it seemed when asked for application, the answer was always something like, We need to raise awareness. We need to raise awareness. I thought that was interesting. It simplifies things mightily. No matter how complicated our our difficulties may be, how messed up our society, it turns out the way to address all of it is the same. It is simply to raise awareness. And as I thought about that, I asked myself, why does that seem like such a convincing answer of all the ways you could solve the problems? Uh, Why is this the one that we put so much confidence in? And I ended up concluding that it has something to do with our belief about the way the world works. 
The reason why raising awareness always seems like the right answer is because we've come to believe that at the heart of our disagreements, or put it this way, at the heart of people's bad behavior is a lack of understanding. That people do what they do because they don't know any better. They do what they do because they haven't been educated, not because of some sort of flaw in human nature. It doesn't seem right to us that people do bad things, evil things, knowing that they shouldn't. So it must be that they do it without any understanding. What they need is a little education, or as it sometimes sounds, a little re-education. Now, hopefully you know me well enough to know that I place a high value in education. And I think education is good. But obviously, one of the things the Bible encourages us to do is look behind simplistic answers to our problems and to consider whether or not it might be the case that merely raising awareness is insufficient. That the reason why human beings act as they do is because of their sin, because of their fallenness, not simply because no one ever told them any differently. And yet, and yet, despite my skepticism, despite the fact that that my eyes glaze over when I hear people say, yet again, we need to raise awareness, I hope you can see in our text that, that this is the language that Paul is speaking of. But Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware. Paul is, so to speak, forgive me, Apostle Paul, he's trying to raise awareness here. There's some things he wants you to be aware of. Because to be ignorant of what he's speaking of is unthinkable. Because you would then be wise in your own sight. Because I do not want you to be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Not only does he want to raise awareness, but he wants to raise awareness about specific things, which he refers to as mysteries. So we need to be aware of the mystery. Two weeks ago in talking about the way Christians ought to see the world, I said that a Christian worldview should consist of what I call the eucatastrophic mindset. And the idea that a Christian should be looking at the world, expecting things to turn out good in the end expecting that out of disaster, God will somehow work glory. And that this is what God has revealed himself to be. And as a result, we should look for him to work this way in the world. But there's more to a Christian mind, a Christ-like mind, than simply expecting things to be good in the end. There's also this, which I think is important. There's awareness of mystery. The Christian mind, nourished by scripture, should have an awareness of the mystery of the world that we live in. An awareness of the mystery that surrounds us. But of course, mystery here, I mean in a certain kind of sense. Because the Greek word translated mystery in scripture, mysterion, not too hard to figure out what that means. The thing is, it doesn't always mean what we mean when we say mystery. As an author of mystery novels, I have an idea of what a mystery is, right? Someone is is brutally murdered and we don't know who did it. There's a mystery and that mystery needs to be solved. 
And you might be tempted to think that's what Paul means when he talks about mysteries. But mystery for Paul's a little bit different. And Paul can talk about the, the ministers of God as being stewards of divine mysteries. And he's not talking about horrific events. He's talking about revealed doctrine. Charles Hodge puts it this way. Whatever needs an apocalypsis to become an object of knowledge is a mysterion. In other words, mystery in scripture, the definition to understand what is a mystery, it's a thing that needs an apocalypsis, an apocalypse or a revelation in order to be known. So the mysteries of God are the things we could not know apart from revelation. We couldn't reason our way there. We couldn't intuit it from looking at the evidence all around us. These are things we could only know if God tells them to us. These are the mysteries that are revealed. And Paul does this from time to time. And I don't want you to be unaware, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, right at the beginning of the chapter. And then he goes on to talk about these Old Testament practices that were sacramental. Where he talks about the, the rock in the wilderness and says the rock was Christ. And I don't want you to be ignorant of that fact. I want you to understand this mystery. He does it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I don't want you to be uninformed, he says. And then he goes on to inform us about spiritual gifts. Something we couldn't have just rationalized for ourselves. We could only understand if we're given this information. So there are mysteries. In the world, there are things we cannot know apart from God's revelation. And knowing this should shape the way that we think about the world. It should shape our expectations. We need to have a consciousness that God is at work in the world around us on a higher, deeper level, a level often beyond our perception and certainly beyond our comprehension so that things are not always as they seem. Tragedies are not always ultimately tragic because God sometimes is working through them. There are deeper realities, deeper meanings to our experiences that we only see as God gives us glimpses of them. So you look at the mystery of this rejection, Israel turning her back on the Messiah And on one level, this rejection, what it looks like is a bunch of people who by right should be the children of God, instead rejecting Jesus. People saying no to Jesus. On that level, that's something we can really understand because it happens all the time. We are surrounded by people and know plenty of people who have said no to Jesus. There is no mystery there. But Paul points out that on another level, something else is going on. That there's a hardening that has come upon them. And that hardening, a work of God, has a purpose. It is to bring the Gentiles to fullness, he says. It is to bring them into the olive tree that we looked at last week. That tree where they have been grafted in. And the mysterious thing here is that Paul does not present those levels to us as a sort of either-or proposition. He's not saying, look, some people think that, that, that they are actively sort of willfully rejecting Jesus, but that's not really what's going on. Really what's happening is God has hardened them. And he's also not doing the other. He's not saying, look, 
Those crazy Calvinists will tell you that God is hardening people, but that's not really what's going on. In fact, they're just saying no willfully to Jesus. Paul's not doing either of those two things, right? He's asserting both levels of mystery as if they live together. As if the the reality that we're faced with has that kind of complexity to it, where understanding on one level, it could be this way. And on another level, it could be that way. That's not penetrating the mystery. That's just the price of admission. That's just basic reality. The way that it works. That's a necessary understanding for us as Christians to see a world full of that kind of mystery where the work of God is not always apparent to us or intelligible, but it is what he reveals it to be. He is doing what he says he's doing. I think the reason why Paul has to call our attention to these things, he has to say, I do not want you to be unaware is that we are still 2000 years later largely unaware. We still have an unawareness problem. We are largely unaware of what God has revealed. Despite the apocalypsis, we do not understand the mysterion. God's ways remain mysterious to us for a couple of reasons. I think one of them, maybe the most obvious one is because we don't pay close enough attention to what he has revealed. In other words, we are largely ignorant of the contents of scripture compared to generations of believers who've gone before us. We are astonishingly uninformed about what God has revealed in his word. So that very well-meaning and pious people will say things with absolute conviction about who God is and how God works that are exactly contrary to what God has said about himself. So that many spiritual pious and well-meaning people, when they hear what God says about himself, react with shock and astonishment that you could assert such things about God because we have neglected what God reveals about himself in scripture. We just don't know. We just don't know. There's another problem too, though. It's not always just a lack of, of information, right? Because a lot of people do have a lot of information about scripture at their fingertips. Um, I'm always impressed having conversations with people who I think may know the Bible better than I do, but don't seem to know the Bible as well as I do. Maybe you've had those experiences before as well. It's hard to understand. Like, like somehow you have like a chapter and verse knowledge of the, uh, of the words of scripture that I envy. But at the same time, there's a kind of big picture. There's a lot of blanks in that wall. There are a lot of things that have been omitted unawareness not because of a lack of, of, of paying attention, but a lack of meditating deeply enough on what has been revealed. We may read our Bibles, but never think about what we read or never think with the saints who have gone before us, never dug deep into the way that scripture has informed the church by the power of the spirit. I don't want you to be unaware. And Paul does not want us to be unaware of this mystery or any of the others. So what we want to look at in our 
text here is really the, the means of the mystery, which is how God is doing what he's doing. And then the meaning of the mystery, which is why God is doing what he's doing. We start with the how. We need to be aware of the means of the mystery. And this has to do with Israel's salvation specifically. All right. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. And here he's quoting from Isaiah and Jeremiah. You saw last week, he kind of touched on both Isaiah and Jeremiah. And now again, he takes ideas from both. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul clearly sees the covenant that God has made with the patriarchs, the covenant that, that uh, stretches through history as having its fulfillment in the taking away of sins. The payoff of that promise is this act of taking away sin. So there's not a separate covenant. There's not another plan of salvation. There's nothing else that God has planned except for the thing that culminates in the act of Christ's atonement, the taking away of sin. Right? So there's one tree, as we saw last time. There's one covenant unifying all of these different promises. There's no deliverer apart from Christ, in other words. But also, look at this. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This is Jesus, and Jesus will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now here, Paul seems to be reading this specifically as a reference to ethnic Israel, right? To the Jews as a people distinct from spiritual Israel, right? So he sees in the covenant promises, yes, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the grafting in of the Gentiles, but also a continuing love and care for the Jews, for his ethnic people, that this is ongoing. And this is part of God's intention. I quoted uh, Charles Hodge earlier. Hodge says here, it seems obvious that Paul intended here to predict that the time would come when the Jews as a body should be converted unto the Lord. Not that there would be some alternate plan of salvation just for the Jews, but the same plan of salvation, but a confidence that God was not done with the ethnic nation of Israel. So this is important. Because we talked last time about the idea that branches had been broken off of the olive tree and other Gentile branches grafted in. And in the replacement of of one branch with another, you could easily take away from that. Okay, so what's happening here is God is done with the Jews and has moved on to the Gentiles. But if you took that away from it, you would be missing that whole point of Christ bringing Jew and Gentile together in unity. But it's not that God has decided, I'm done with these people. Now I'm going to go play with those people. God is actually bringing them together, bringing the Gentiles into that tree, but not to the exclusion of the Jews. So continuing hope, a continuing plan for ethnic Israel. Those words there, all Israel, all Israel will be saved or argued over quite a bit. Uh, during the Reformation, kind of as an overreaction, there was always this tendency to, to see every reference to Israel as a reference to spiritual Israel. The idea of Jew and Gentile brought together in this spiritual kingdom. But here, Hodge again insists, that's, that's going a little far. In the context, Paul is talking about ethnic Israel 
talking about God's intention to bring ethnic Israel into this spiritual kingdom. So the physical will enter into the spiritual. And uh, I think Hodge has a point there, and I'm not one to to publicly disagree with Charles Hodge if I can avoid it. But, uh, but I want to suggest that in those words, all Israel, there's also something a little bigger going on that has to do with the context we've just come off from, the idea of the olive tree. I think when Paul writes those words and Paul conceives of all Israel, what he's conceiving of is that complicated physical, spiritual reality that that olive tree represents. So it's, it's not uh, ethnic Israel to the exclusion of these Gentile believers. It's actually all of them brought together, but with a distinct identity, let's say, for ethnic Israel. Because God's way of making unity is not to erase the identity of the people he unites. He brings unity and diversity together equally. If you look at verse 28, there's a couple of things to reflect on. Paul says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, which really points to the complexity of these relationships. That it's possible for, for people, he's talking here about unbelievers who've actively rejected Christ and his church, who persecute in many cases Christ and his church, and he describes them as beloved enemies. These are beloved enemies. Because man works on one level and God works on another. We judge the situation based on that enmity that we see outwardly. But if we judge on God's level, we would see people beloved by God. And that would change the way we treat them, for one thing, the way that we see them. Something else, though, to reflect on in in those words, which is the way that covenant makes community. And Paul is not talking about just individuals here. He's talking about tribes, about nations, about peoples. And this is what God's covenant does. It doesn't just find us as individuals and leave us there. God's covenant creates communities. The church is a community of the promise, not just a bunch of random individuals who happen to believe the same thing. We are not individuals before God. We are not individuals before God. We are individuals brought into community with one another in Christ. And there's a big difference between those two things. So the reason why this mysterious hardening has happened is God has a plan. He's doing this in order to expand the borders of salvation. There is a purpose behind it, mysterious as it is. And there is a meaning of it that we should be aware of. The end of our text, he gives us three fours, uh, F-O-R. Four, the gifts of God and the calling of God are irrevocable, he says. Four, just as you were at one time disobedient. Then at the end, four, God has consigned all to disobedience. He talks about an irrevocable calling, disobedience as a means to God's purpose, and then a desire to have mercy on all. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, irrevocable is worth practicing so that you don't say irrevocable, which is not correct, but many people say it. Um, The point here is God is eternal. He is unchanging. He is all knowing. He doesn't enter into commitments and then later on down the line, figure out actually, maybe I don't want to follow through on this. There's some stuff I didn't foresee. 
That's not the nature of God. So that when God does something as definite, as certain as making the covenant promises that he has made, don't imagine that he doesn't intend to fulfill them. Now, we oftentimes look at that as a source of comfort for us as believers, but Paul is using it here as a source for hope for people who are at least for now unbelievers, which is mind boggling and mysterious, but also I would argue quite wonderful and shows how differently he sees the world than we do. He says in verses 30 and 31 words that when I was growing up in the church, my fundamentalist preachers never would have said because it sounds like an excuse for disobedience. He says, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. The more you think about that, the more you'll start asking yourself. So wait now. So was the disobedience good? Should they have disobeyed? Is that what you're saying? And and the answer is no. Like the disobedience was bad. And yet the bad thing was used by God to bring about his glory. In other words, it's complicated the way that God works, not only through good deeds, but also bad ones that even in disobedience, even in rejection, Paul can recognize a purpose of God. Again, We should not be unaware of these things. Disobedience is disobedience judged on man's level. But looking through God's eyes, incredibly, even disobedience can be a means of mercy. For God, he says in verse 32, has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. If all, both Jew and Gentile, regardless of whether you were born inside the covenant community or outside the covenant community, if all have been consigned to disobedience, then salvation must be the same for all. There is no, as people sometimes say, second-class citizenship in this equation. Salvation for the Gentiles is the same as salvation for the Jews because God has brought everyone, no matter where they started, God has brought everyone onto the same playing field of disobedience, of need, of dependence on Christ alone for salvation. God's purpose was to bring us all into the same relation with him through mercy so that we might be one, one people, one plan of salvation, one baptism, one redeemer for all. And when you hear those words, mercy on all, obviously when we read a text like this, we bring a lot of not only uh, preconceived notions to it, but also hopes. So some people read mercy on all. And because they have a very sort of You know, it's really important to emphasize there's only salvation in Christ. You see mercy on all and you think, okay, well, that doesn't mean what it says. That means something else. And there are other people who are on the other end of that spectrum. We're like, wait, mercy on all. Tell me nothing more about scripture. I'm going to cling to those three words. And and please don't disabuse me of my universalist notions. Now, when Paul talks about mercy on all in context, you can see what he's doing. He's talking about this equalizing 
in God's plan that all are brought under condemnation so that all might be shown mercy without distinction, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, no matter what tribe you come from, no matter your background, no matter your status, any of that, all of us stand on this equal footing before God. That's the mercy on all that he's talking about. Benjamin Warfield distinguished between what he called an each and every universalism and a biblical universalism. So that each and every universalism is when you hear this sort of language, you think, oh, I guess all that stuff about Jesus doesn't actually matter because God just wants to have mercy and all. Warfield says, no, no, God does have mercy on all. Christ is the savior of the world, but not in that sense, in the sense of what he calls biblical universalism. The example being Noah, that God saved the world by saving his people. There's a way not only to not skip over these seemingly universalistic passages, but to celebrate them because they are acknowledging the, the, the greatness of God's plan of salvation, the extent of his love. I don't want you to be unaware that God is much greater than we imagine. I don't want you to be unaware that God is more merciful and more just than you imagine he is. I don't want you to be unaware that what God is doing in Christ is beyond our comprehension. And I don't want you to be unaware. There's one way of salvation and it is through knowledge of Jesus Christ. And none of those things I just said contradict one another. They live together in the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.